Hi, my name's Cody Reynolds. I'm running for Congress in Oregon's 6th Congressional District, and this is Chat with Cody. My guest today is my friend and a woman I admire greatly, Mary Tobin. Thank you for joining us today, Mary. Thank you for having me. Um, today, we're going to be talking about Mary and her background, uh, how we know each other, and how her life has evolved uh, through her service to this country. So why don't you start with telling us a little bit about yourself, Mary? I always like to introduce myself as Mary Tobin from the Undisputed King of Cities, ATL, Georgia, a lifelong lover of lemon pepper wings, sweet tea, and if you like unsweetened tea, you're not American. Um, and that's how I introduce myself. But I am a Southern girl, Georgia peach. I... Definitely got it out of the mud, as the young people would say. So grew up, you know, a kind of a hard upbringing, but one um, built in serving others. Mother marched with Dr. Martin Luther King and John Lewis, so that instilled a sense of service in me and, uh, and fighting for things that are right. And so I think that I grew up with a sense of resilience, uh, a sense of fight in me, uh, but also a sense of wanting to do for other folks. And so kind of made sense that after I graduated from high school and had a couple of opportunities um, that I would attend West Point with you, where I met you. <laughs> so that was what, three years ago? Yes, uh, two and a half years ago. Two and a half we, years ago. Yeah, when we graduated, yes. <laughs> it seems <laughs> like yesterday. Multiplied times. <laughs> It's like 10, yes. <laughs> it's been, it's been a, I feel like I've known you forever, man. Right, yes, um, yes. We were kids when we met, for sure. I mean, I'm still, uh, in many ways, young at heart, yes. for sure. Yes, you are. Um, well, so we met at West Point. Uh, we became friends, and, uh, you know, we've been following each other's lives for the last yeah. three years. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, we're so old, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but uh, so why don't you tell us about your life post-graduating from West Point? Yeah. You, well, you know our lives changed on 9-11 for sure. It did. We went from... Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I think, you know, like everybody has that moment. Yeah. Like, when, you know, especially us who were at West Point at that yeah. time. Everybody has that that catalyzing moment where we we're like, oh, okay, this is why we are here. This is what, you know, this is what our lives are. And this is why uh, we have, we have committed to attending and yeah. graduating from West Point. Uh, what was that moment for you? Yeah. You know what? I'm going to back up for a second, right? Because growing up in Atlanta, if you're a black girl, your dream is supposed to be to go to Spelman College, which is one of the historically black colleges and universities in the country. It's a private school and one of the best. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. And when I was in high school, I got thrown into JRTC. And there was a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Nicholas J. Burke, this white guy with white snowy hair, steely blue eyes, and, you Looking know. Like Colonel Sanders? Yeah, like a, a hardcore Colonel Sanders. Like if Colonel Sanders had like a buzz cut <laughs> and wore his dog tags all day, that would be <laughs> this guy, Colonel Burke. They call it, they literally called him um, Stony Burke. And he told me one day, hey, Tobin, if you consider going to West Point, you'll make a four-year decision that changes the rest of your life. So being that I came from a poor background, I, you know, decided to not choose the options like Spelman, like Brown, Georgia Tech, Emory, um, even the Air Force Academy, because he told me that I could make a decision that would change the rest of my life. So I was making a money and a generational decision. I never put into perspective, wait, one day you are really going to have to, or you might be called up to put your life on the line for your country. So fast forward to 9-11, when all of a sudden, um, you know, we're on lockdown at West Point because just 50 miles down the road, there's an attack happening on our on our country. And I'm staring at the second tower hit. I mean, set the second plane hit that tower. I'm thinking to myself, wait, that, that's the first time I clicked in my mind. I need to defend my country. 
And that was the first time I felt that way because being black in this country, it, uh, there, was, there was some World War I and World War II soldiers coming back uh, from Europe. And they used to say, um, as a soldier, as a black soldier, we fight two wars. We fight the one in defense of our country, and then we fight the one here in our country so that this country can recognize that we're citizens. And so I, I was fighting that, those two wars subconsciously, but in that moment, it was just like, wait, no, I actually need to defend my country. And so I felt in those moments like a full American. Um, and I think that that was the first time I ever felt that. It wasn't anger. It wasn't sadness. It was just like, this is what I'm here for. And I was like, wait, I think I might be a patriot. Some, something happened. <laughs> I think I might be a patriot. And from that point on, I, I locked in. I was like, you know what? When I graduate, I'm leading somebody's son and somebody do, somebody's daughter in war. And I better, I better be ready. Um, and so that just really uh, like a, re- a, 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 a switch flip for me. Mm-hmm. Got serious about, even more serious about school, but even more serious about military leadership and becoming the best leader I could be. Because if I was going to lead somebody's kids in war, then I had to be the best, right? So, yeah, that's that's kind of what happened to me. It was like a continuum, but that day was like capping it off for me. Um, yeah. So to build on that or add to that, um, I was in class mm, when mm-hmm. the first plane hit the tower. And it was not until I was halfway back from class that mm. day when people are like, hey, uh, did you see the news? And mm. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, yeah, an airplane flew into the, the tower. And I was like, that's really weird. What kind of crazy accident was that? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I go up to the new, you know, go up to the room and I turn on the news and I'm like, okay, you know, I didn't really, no one, I mean, no one that I knew had realized that it was a jet engine, that a jet yeah, plane that had flown yeah. into it. I thought I was like, you know, just a crazy Cessna or something. And then I saw literally as it happened, the second plane hit the towers and I was like, yeah. oh, this is, this isn't an accident. Right, for this sure. Is, this is an attack. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I was enlisted, you know, I've, I had mm-hmm. been deployed before even going to West Point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the reality of, of, like that war was a possibility. It was very real to me. And it's one of the reasons that I, that I went to West Point. Uh, it's one of the reasons I, uh, I wanted, uh, that I had committed my life to this path to service. You know what's so interesting about that? We looked, those of us who had not been in the Army before, looked to guys like you all to help us make sense of that. I remember going to some of our classmates like Ben Simonette, mm-hmm. right? And saying, dude, is like this is it, huh? It was, and it was. and I think we look to y'all for some of that maturity in that space, because even though we were at a military academy, obviously preparing to become officers uh, in defense of our country, we're still like kids. I mean, we went to school when we were teenagers, <laughs> to be honest, and here we are being trained in the footsteps of presidents and generals. Yeah. But I don't think it was until 9-11 and it hit me. And so now I'm looking at folks like y'all like, well, you know. The, so the interesting thing, at least for our class, is mm-hmm. um, we, had already, we had already had our day of commitment. Yeah, we just literally that Sunday prior. Right. Yeah. We, so we were the first class uh, that, or <laughs> sorry, we were the last class yeah. to have committed prior to knowing that we'd go to war. Wow, is that a fact? It is because wow, two thousand we were cows yes. that year, and so it, it wasn't a decision that you know we we were in it. We made that decision when we committed, right? For sure. And then we then war came and yeah. um, we were in it, you know. But the people who everyone who came after us knew we were at war, and they they could make that decision. Yeah, I did, I've never thought about it like that. They, You're absolutely right. They could make that decision, like, hey, you know what? Two, wow. years, two years was enough for me. I don't want to go to war. So I've never thought about it like that. You're right. Yeah. Well, to, the class of 2004, they yeah, were the first they, class that willfully, that made the conscious decision that's right. to serve in war. That's right. Um, yeah, because they, they're often parallel with, um, what is it? They say the children of 9-11. Mm-hmm. So all those young people who grew up, they were, they were like, what, in third, fourth, fifth grade? And then... 
So they were conscious of it, and then they still joined the military, yeah. right? Like, oh my goodness, thank you for bringing that out. I, I didn't realize uh, that. And I mean, something that most a lot of people don't know, uh, there are many, many of our friends have died yeah. in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Um, the classes of 2003, 2004, uh, like we have suffered greatly. Yeah, you know, we yeah, have, we have. Yeah, we have. We have. <laughs> we have far too many friends who have died in combat. Um, yeah, and who have died due to the effects of combat. Yeah, uh, both mental and physical. Yeah. Um, so it's it's the burden that you know we we took on willingly, yeah. even though we didn't know. Yeah. When we made that decision, but we committed to it because that was why we were there. Um, it's something that I think about a lot. You know. Yeah, for sure. I. Because I'm often asked by my friends back home, you know, who did not join the military, you know, if you knew then what you know now, would you do it again? That's a really hard question to to answer um, because I think that my service, especially in the military, everything that I learned in war has made me the leader that I am. Like I, I think that I was going to be a pretty decent human being regardless of Told you, my mother is a fantastic woman. My grandmother, fantastic woman. My stepfather, a great man. So I don't think I was going to be too shabby of a human being. But in terms of leadership, I think that being able to serve my country under that amount of pressure and with the amount of responsibility and accountability, it has literally made me the leader, leader that I am. So like in contrast, when we look at a lot of the challenges that we're having in our country now, um, you know, I'm looking at some of our leaders like, man, you know. You disappoint me. Yeah, because while, you know, it, everything that is happening is super difficult, super challenging. None of it's an easy fix. But you're not getting shot at right now, bro. <laughs> you know, like, make the decision. Choose the harder right over the easier wrong and stick with it. And if it turns out to be the wrong thing, apologize, learn the lessons and move forward. And I think, um, you know, there's there's the there's the cons of being 22, 23 years old and having 50 men who you're responsible for. And you're figuring out how am I going to tell their husband, their, their wives, their children, their mothers, their fathers about their sacrifice you know, so there's there's that piece, that hard piece. But it's also like it, it makes you grow up really fast and not afraid to make decisions, the hard calls, um, not afraid to kind of see the big picture uh, more quickly than others. Like, OK, ultimately, I got to do what's best for the mission. Ultimately, I got to do what's best for my people. So how what decision do I make? And I make that and I stick with it. And I just I wish that. A lot of our servant leaders, I like to call them servant leaders, whether they are or not, right? You call people what they, what you hope they will be. What you and, want them to yeah, be. Yeah, and then hope that they kind of walk into it and grow into it. I wish that a lot of our servant leaders had that type of mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why I've stayed in the, in the service game for so long, uh, instead of chasing the money. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a thing, right? Right. That you get to a point in your life where you look back and you ask yourself, would I change any of it? Mm, mm -hmm. And would changing any of it change where I am today? Yeah, yeah. And do I want to be different? Do yeah. I want to be a different person? And for me, I look back on everything that I've done in my life, the mistakes I've made, yeah. my triumphs, my successes, my my half my half wins and half losses. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would change any of them. Right. You know, it's, it's been... It's the the education of Cody. Yeah, uh, I like that. That should be a reality show. <laughs> the education of Cody. Well, this is sort of our reality yeah, show. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Mary, I, I, I agree with you. It's it, it. We are the sum of our experiences. For sure. And everything that that we learned while at West Point, and and that we are we've involved ourselves in since. Yeah. Has, Turn us into the people that we are. Yeah, I think I think we're super fortunate that you and I are still in a place. I think mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, where we can have these conversations, we can make certain choices, we can continue to serve in the way that we've chosen to serve, 
we have a lot of brothers and sisters in arms who are struggling. And I think when we do things to kind of make something of our lives and to serve other people, in a way, gosh, just, that makes me emotional. <sighs> in a way, I think it um, it honors them, whether they're living or not, right? Because yeah. we're we're lucky. Gosh, it makes we, me emotional. It, Mary, you're gonna make me cry. Yeah, it, 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 I, I think I mean, I, I, we're we're lucky. You know, we got we got <laughs> brothers, um, you know, who who chose another route out, another way out. We have. Sisters who, who didn't get who to didn't, make a choice. Didn't get to make a choice. And so I feel like, you know, with things that you're choosing to do with your life, the way you've chosen to live your life, um, things that I'm choosing to do with my life, I think it's the least that we can do. Absolutely. Right? Uh, just, to, just to honor them. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Who knew I was going to get emotional on your podcast, bro? Like, uh, get out of here. <laughs> Mary, it's yeah. Yeah, like I'm tearing up a little bit myself. Um you know, like, I don't, you know, we don't need to invoke their names, but we know who yeah, they are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And they, everything we do, like, yeah. it is not, mm-hmm. uh, not for them, but it is in, with them in mind. It, it makes their, it makes their sacrifice and their living not in vain. Right. Well. Yeah. In the, in the bigger picture, like, they died in service to our country. You right. Know? Uh, and that. That that dedication, that devotion, that that life, that living of the ethos of service mm-hmm. is something that you know. I think that is hard to communicate to people who have never done it. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, like the military. If you <laughs> military life is service. Yes, like the details of your everyday yeah. life they are mm-hmm. mundane. You know, you get up, you go, you go to, you go to physical training, uh, you know, you go to formation, you do Mm -hmm. some paperwork. That's, that's the details. It's, it's the mundane reality of, of, of military life, but the mission, right? The mission is what drives us. Like we know that when we get up in the morning, what we're doing Mm -hmm. is important. For sure. As much as I hated getting up at four in the morning and going to PT. (laughs) I don't, very few people love that. Some people do. Uh, as much as I hated filling out counseling reports, as yes. much, writing operations orders, yes. uh, those are the mundane details. Yeah. They, were, they were the necessary perfunctory duties required of, of someone seeking to serve. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to translate that to people, like I said, who, who have never served in the military. Um, it is service. There's, yeah, unquestionably, sure. it, is, it is a yeah. path to service. Um, so, Mary. Yes. You had an interesting job yes. at West Point. At West Point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Why don't you tell us about that? Like, and, and yeah. how it's led you, that, that role yeah. has led you to where you are today. Absolutely. Uh, in my senior year at West Point, or, my, or our first year, I was something called the Respect Captain. Very, very interesting title. And I think... If it was translated into today's terms, it would be the chief diversity officer. And only that role also included dealing with sexual assault, sexual harassment, and um, those types of issues. And so I spent my senior year uh, essentially investigating claims of racism, uh, claims of discrimination and bigotry, claims of sexual assault and sexual harassment. And so I got to, one, really see how uh, West Point, even the most prestigious leadership institution in the world, is a microcosm of society. So it's a reflection of society. So it wasn't necessarily going to vet out all the issues and challenges that we as a society experiences, which was really good training for me as a leader, right? Because it's just like, no, we're going to have uh, the same issues. However, at a leadership institution, we're supposed to be trained how to deal with that. So I really appreciate the fact that as a cadet, as a young person, uh, I was being asked to help lead my fellow cadets, our classmates, uh, other cadets at the academy through those issues, through investigations. Some of some cadets were arrested and charged. And, um, and, 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 and kind of going through those processes, 
I think that was the basis of what would lead to a passion post-military, which was around consulting and training for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I think my my mother's a teacher. My mother's a lifelong teacher. So I grew up watching her be a professor at Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown College. And, and so I think once I got out of the military, that bug hit me. And so all of a sudden, I found myself in front of classrooms, just like my mother was only leading folks through how to identify issues in their organizations, how to solve their own problems, and how to see that they have strengths. Uh, inside of their organization. So, and it also got a kick out of like looking at CEOs and going, dude, that's racist. And, uh, <laughs> and then having that really like really heated conversation. No, you can't fire me. I mean, you take away a contract, that's great, but you're going to be racist. So I feel like you need to stick with me. Um, so being able to have those really blunt conversations and solve some of the issues that I couldn't solve necessarily when I was in the military, um, that a lot of people still struggle with in their organizations. I think it, it's going to sound crazy, but it was actually fun um, because I felt like in those moments I was making a difference. And so when you see people struggle all over this country with, oh my gosh, racism is such a big problem. How do we ever solve it? Well, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? Like you got to start somewhere. So if you look across your board members, all of them are white. Your C-suite is white. But then most of your frontline workers are black or Hispanic or some other underrepresented group. You see it. Someone points it out and you go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? It's just nothing we can do about it. Yes, it is. Next time a board member position opens up, you intentionally court representative people for those positions. Next time a C-suite position opens up. You intentionally make sure that you recruit for or court underrepresented groups for those positions. There is something that we can do about it. But I think because the problems are so pervasive and longstanding, folks, it's too hard. You know, we just won't do anything about it. Um, It's not even that it's so hard. It's that at that level, it's a relationships game. One thousand percent. And it's uh, yeah. I know this person. Yeah, I know them to be qualified. You yeah. Know, whereas you know maybe my social circles or the social circles of whoever's the decision maker in the, in that organization don't overlap with qualified candidates that they know and trust. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's that's that's. I think it starts with expanding your circles. Yeah. Oh, one thousand percent. I often say this to chief executive officers. I go, you're not racist because you're racist. You're racist because you're lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and, and they get, what are you talking about? You're lazy. I do believe you when you say that, you know, the circles that you have or you're adjacent to, you don't know of the qualified individuals from these underrepresented groups. I believe you when you say that. Okay, well, then expand your network, lazy person. Like, figure it out. Because if 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 you know one, then I guarantee you there's a hundred more like that. Um you know what's funny is if I were putting together a board, I could find more than a couple. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes, you should. You can't go there. <laughs> more than a couple uh, persons of, of color or underrepresented. Uh, and I'd probably start with you. Thank you, Cody. But I think it's your inti- you are intentional about the relationships you, that you form, though. You know, and 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 it was like I was I was telling you earlier. You're also a very um, curious person, but you're also, you're an empathetic person, right? So when you are asking questions or seeking to understand, it's because you really want to understand or know about a person's experience so that you can identify with them and if necessary, support and help them. I think that that's, you know, even in your current endeavors, I think that that's what makes you an asset to your community um, because it's it's the curiosity uh, leads to connection, and that connection leads to, okay, what can I do to support? That's actually all I ever ask folks to do when I'm training and consulting. It's like, be curious enough to know why I wear my hair the way I do. Be curious enough to ask me what Kwanzaa actually is. Be curious to know what does being invited to the cookout mean. And right. <laughs> This is a discussion I think it's ongoing. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
Here we go. No, no. I, I'm, I'll, you know, I haven't earned it yet. Yes. No, you haven't. Um, someday. someday. Yes. I hope, I hope to receive an unsolicited invite. Yes. An unsolicited invite to the cookout. Yes. That's, those are the only ones that matter. Yes. For sure. For sure. You can't ask for it. We, we just have to give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I look forward to that day, Mary. Absolutely. Um, so, you've done so much work with so many organizations. Mm -hmm. Have you, tell me about the one organization that got it. Like, tell me what they did. I want to know how they got it, what they did that made you believe that they got it. Yeah. Well, one, they brought me in. I'm playing. Um, <laughs> I, the, I think the one organiz organization that truly got it, um, one, they understood that they had a knowledge or inform information deficit, really from their own people. And so when I said, hey, have you actually asked your team how they feel about this or what they think about that? And when they realized that they hadn't had listening sessions or anything like that in years or anything substantial in terms, and when I say substantial, I mean people related. I mean, they, it wasn't just black issues. It was disability. It was the LGBTQ community. It was work environment. Like, do I even like working here? All of that. And when they realized that they didn't have a pulse, they didn't have a finger on the pulse of their team. It was like, oh my gosh, we have so much to learn about our people. And when they began having those sessions and folks began to say, you know what? I really, really love this work. That's why I chose to come here, but I don't like working here. And here's the reason why. And every single reason they realized these are things that we can fix. That's when I knew we had something. Also, when those leaders, when the leaders, the C-suite leaders were coming to those sessions, like they made it a priority. The majority of them showed up. And if not, they actually, if they couldn't show up, they would let the folks know this is the reason why. So they were holding themselves accountable. And then the last part is I always believe that, you know, if you don't measure it, it doesn't matter. And then I also believe that, you know, show me your budget, your line item budget, and I'll show you what you care about. When they started investing, literally putting money towards solving some of the challenges, I was like, oh, yeah, I got it. And here it is, three, four years later, 50% uh, of their C-suite is uh, representative, diverse, diversity of thought, as well as race and ethnic background. Um, I will also say a lot of their, their middle management is now more representative of the frontline uh, team members. I also say that uh, when you talk about cultural representation and celebration month over month, they, they're running it front line. And then when they invited me to the Juneteenth celebration, I knew they were on to something. I was like, wait a minute, you're celebrating Juneteenth and the people get Juneteenth off and X, Y, and Z. But I also then, a month or two later, I was like, okay, what are you doing for Ramadan? Boom, they have, they have it. What are you doing for Hanukkah? Boom, they have it. You know, And I was just like, you all get it. Even Because when I first started working with them, I, I think it was in the wintertime and and I asked them, I said, okay, well, we got to be cognizant of if you have uh, any Jewish team members, Hanukkah's coming up. And I was like, Hanukkah, we don't do, ugh, get out of here. And like, and I, I laid into them. And they didn't expect me, black Baptist from the South, to really lay into them about Hanukkah. And, 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 and literally two, three years later, it's like, Mary, this is what we're doing. You're invited to our celebration. I was like, you got it. That's what I'm talking about. So so as someone who has at one point or another in their life been on the other end of a Mary laying in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, uh, I do appreciate the fear that they must have felt. <laughs> yep, because I would not have held my tongue. I would have not held my tongue at all. But... You know, that's just the kind of relationship you and I have For had. For sure. We've never been in, like, you know, we don't hold back from each other. Right? No, no. Uh, I think that is another thing that I think you take from the military is these friends that that you hold in your heart. Yeah. And yeah. you value them as people and, and you value them as friends. And no matter how long it goes between seeing these people, like everyone... 
like uh, we have classmates I you know we haven't seen each other in years and yeah Mary I you it doesn't feel like it, right it doesn't it doesn't feel <laughs> like it's even been a day not at all um yeah it's like man I am so glad that you are in this world uh, because mm. the, of the work that you are doing uh, and I you know, obviously you can't say the name of the the business that you were consulting with, but I, mm-hmm. I imagine they're a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. probably a Fortune 100. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, that you're out there helping these people do the actual work, like they have to do the work. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there are, there's you and there's people like you out there uh, changing organizations uh, for the better is remarkable. Oh, thank you. I think the to your point, I think the military instills a type of um, intestinal fortitude, is what we used to call it, right? This uh, moral courage to, in the activism world, we call it speaking truth to power. But I think in the leadership world, it's having the moral courage to say and do what is right even in the face of opposition, right? In a candid way. In a candid way. Like, it, literally, candor is is one of our leadership values, where you, you're able to say something to someone, speak the truth, do it in a way that is respectful of them, but also respectful of the moment, the urgency of the moment. And I think the military really instills that in you. I mean, I, it, I, I think from basic training, it does that with us, right? It's... um. It's it's living life without artifice. For sure, for sure. It is, it is being intentional in every moment. Yes. Um, and living your values. Right? Yes. Like, those are the things that I think that the military does very well. I absolutely agree. And that West Point just further strengthens. I agree. Uh, I agree. So it's um, yeah, like service is something that you and I both hold in our hearts. Right? Yes. Like uh. It, what about your current job? What are you currently doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm proud to serve in the current administration. I uh, work for an agency called AmeriCorps. And I think given my, I think the trajectory of my life, it makes sense that I work for this federal agency. It is the only federal agency devoted to volunteerism and community service through national service. National service, I like to say, is like the stateside version of the Peace Corps. Where literally um, we have alumni of over a million Americans who have chosen to spend a year and sometimes more volunteering or serving as members. We do a service year in communities all throughout the country, uh, Guam, Puerto Rico as well. Um, so our territories, and they spend a year doing everything from um, working in what we call the FEMA course, so responding to natural disasters. Uh, we've had thousands of volunteers or members uh, spend the last two years on the front lines fighting in COVID. So uh, managing COVID testing stations, vaccination stations, uh, making sure that folks who don't have food um, or access to food or support and resources due to COVID, um, that they can get that. We also have a veteran serving in something called the Veteran Fire Corps. So they're out here, out west, um, fighting uh, forest fires. We have folks who are teachers in Teach for America, it, located in, in schools um, and low socioeconomic communities all throughout this country. We have over 20,000 veterans, uh, senior veterans, who are volunteering in places like Utah and Montana and, and taking groceries to other veterans and aging population um, who can't get food when it's blizzarding or or um, if they're homebound. And so we got Americans all over this country who are choosing to only take a stipend um, and work for a year serving each other. Uh, what I think I love about AmeriCorps so much is it kind of put into perspective for me as a leader, the various lanes of service that there are. So we talk about national service. Um, and when we talk about national service at the federal level, this is what we mean. You're choosing AmeriCorps, which is national service, where you're choosing service years and or Peace Corps. Um, then you're choosing the military. That's another route. 
of service to this country, or you're choosing public service, which is our elected officials or working in the federal government. Um, but we look at that as this, this entire public service vein. And so we speak about it in those three lanes. And I love that because it's like a continuum of service. Do you look at it, I mean, at the federal policy level, yeah. is it, are these lanes of service operating in parallel uh, or are they lanes of service where they cross over? Uh, actually both, to be honest, right? So the expectation is that our federal partners, right? So the folks that I work with on the Hill quite often, um, that they are first representing the needs of their constituents. So it makes sure that a person like me is making sure the resources get to their communities, but also that they are passing legislation um, as needed or where they feel is needed in order to increase the amount of resources that goes into these communities. So, right. So you power us up and then we provide the people power and the resources to the communities. Right. So that at that level, that's what we expect. So that's kind of working in parallel, but we also look at it is, so if a veteran, so for me, I am the senior advisor for wounded warrior veterans and military family initiatives. So my job is to advocate for our veterans and our military families but my job is also, hey, veteran X, with your family Y, uh, you just completed 20 years of honorable service or you just were medically retired or you got hurt while you were in. Are you, do you, what do you want to do with your next, uh, your next step of life? Well, I don't know, Mary. Well, I, I just feel like I, I lost a sense of purpose and mission when I left the military. I don't, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. I got you. you here's your next mission. With AmeriCorps, only it's in your local community. Come continue your service to this country in AmeriCorps. Then when you're done with your year of service, you want to work in the federal government? Because we have plenty of opportunities now to pay you for your skills, your experience, your leadership, right? And the education award you just got from AmeriCorps. You can continue your service. And then, oh, by the way, if you are thinking about representing uh, you know, your local community as you just spent a year or two serving, well, then we can connect you to our partners who are also working to develop, uh, you know, our, our local Americans and veterans into local elected leaders. So it is this continuum that we look at. So we don't look at it as separate. It's just like, where do you enter into this game? And then where are you serving folks and having the most impact? So there's you know, there's not one path to public service. Oh, no, not at all. It's, it's funny because, yeah. you know, some people consider public service to be the federal job or, right. or the yeah. state level job, yeah. the government. Oh, I work in local government, yeah. you know. I know what public service is, Yeah. you know. Uh, so, but it's, 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 it's heartening oh, to, yeah. it's to know that, that at the sure. federal level you guys are viewing it, you know, the intention, like people's intentions, right? Oh, yeah, 1,000%. I mean, I, I was a nonprofit executive director for a while in Brooklyn working on solving, solving poverty, and all of the folks in the nonprofit world referred to what we did as public service. Yeah. And so that really broadened my horizons too, right? Because I came in, my pathway in to public service was the military. Mm -hmm. But here I am working with folks who've been in the public service game, 40, 50 years. And they're like, no, we're public servants. And they, no, you are a public servant. That's, that's right. None, that's nothing, great. no, nobody's ever, none of them have ever had anything federal attached to it, yeah. but they're like, we're, we're public servants. Yeah. Let's, uh, I want to talk about some of these communities that yeah. you're serving. Sure. You know, um, what, what are, where, and what are these communities that you're serving that you find uh, you, your organization directing most of their resources towards? Yeah, so you know, when my my first job out of the military, I found myself uh, in Okinawa, Japan, and I was actually working for a uh, Department of the Navy, and I was supporting a, a particular unit that was actually supporting the tsunami cleanup. Um, so after those the large tsunamis that hit, were you there with Alex? Um, right after she was, yeah. So she was mainland, and I think we kind of crossed over at the same time. We missed each other. And so I th she was there like right after it hit, and then I was kind of like post-hit, helping to restore communications and relationships with between the American unit, uh, the U.S. military and, and the local Japanese population. And 
it was very interesting how most of our resources there was devoted to really reestablishing engagement and community connection. Um, uh, working with Japanese communities, I had to learn a lot about cultural differences, cultural appreciation, and how to properly honor folks as we support them. Taught me a lot because while I have this incredible appreciation now for the Japanese culture, those hard lessons learned and those mistakes I made, those things that I just, you know, the things that I didn't read and didn't apply and then I got my tail handed to me, rightfully so, by local leaders. Once I went into Brooklyn, and literally my job description was to fight poverty in a place called Brownsville, Brooklyn, uh, which has the highest concentration of public housing in the country. Um, one of the first, I want to say the second week I was in Brownsville, one of the elders, of, they call them old timers of the community, he's like, come on, I'm going to take you around the community so you can meet people. Basically what he meant was, I'm going to take you around and let the community hand you your tail because you're an outsider and you come in here, you know, flashing your big checkbook back by your nonprofit, your fancy nonprofit that sends the black woman into the black community to try and help us. You don't know us. Um, you're you're flashing your checkbook. You haven't you haven't even like taken the time to speak to us and find out what it is we really need. And then you're trying to implement these these initiatives. I mean, handed me my tail for about a week. I'm I'm on the street corner getting cussed out. <laughs> Rightfully so. Uh, and that was like literally my second lesson in learning community connection. So I wind up devoting a ton of resources to, yeah, of course, employment, right? That was, they had, the, the unemployment rate there was abysmal, but also doing things like art shows and giving out scholarships and any job fair I had, there was food uh, for Christmas, uh, devoting resources to uh giving out food boxes and toy drives and different things like that, uh, really making connection with folks. It reminds me, I, my, my religious background um, is Christian, so it reminds me of uh, when Jesus uh, used to teach and he would feed people before he taught them. I mean, he literally would turn to the disciples and say, bro, they're hungry. How, how am I going to talk to them for about two hours and they're like, I can hear their stomach growling from the top of this mountain, right? This is my version of what happened in the Bible. <laughs> and so I literally, so that between me getting my tail handed to me in Okinawa, my tail handed to me in Brownsville, it taught me meet the immediate needs of the people first, and then you can hear them when you're talking about how to address long-term solutions. You got to triage. Somebody's bleeding out. Right. Stop, but you, stop but you're, yeah, stop the bleeding first. Then you could talk to them about financial plans yeah. and, and going back to get their GED. But if they're bleeding, all they want you to do is stop the bleeding first. And so that's what it really taught me, empathy and compassion. And that is what I took into every one of my roles. So, you know, um, Brownsville not yeah. is urban. It's not rural. Right, not at all. And there are a lot of rural communities yes. in Oregon and this country mm -hmm. that are bleeding. Yes, they are. Uh, what is your organization doing to, yeah. to stop that bleeding? I, uh, yeah. Where are you guys focusing those resources? How are you focusing those resources to stop to stop that, please. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I love this question so much um, because many of our veterans and their families, they return uh, to very rural environments that are hurting. They're hurting economically. They're um, hurting poverty level-wise. And, and so what's very interesting about a lot of the funding that has come out um, in this current administration has been devoted to rural communities. And so for us... We're putting a lot of our funding into helping organizations that are trying to address unemployment, that are trying to address uh, a lack of access uh, to affordable housing, that are trying to address a lack of access to affordable food. Um, and so we provide people power. So we're putting folks in organizations to fundraise. Um, we're putting uh, folks in organizations in order to hire um, more people from that local area. Um, we're also trying to put funds into that community uh, or 
put funds into organizations in those communities um, that will call attention to a lack of proper schooling, edu- access to education, um, that will also bring more industry in, industry like tech industry in those areas. So we have some, a couple of initiatives um, around broadband and providing broadband to rural communities because half the battle is if you don't have access to the internet, then there's so many opportunities that you miss out on. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to start at that root level because we're going to be around, oh. right? We're not one of those kind of fly-by-night, pop-in, pop-out. We're a federal agency who will be there, and our funding will continue to be there, right? So we're trying to figure out what is the best way to plant seeds and then partner with other Fortune 1, 500 companies, right. And who will invest in there. But even if they decide to leave, we'll still be there, right? So, so you're a trained systems engineer. Yes, I am. What is your limiting factor in you being able to execute your mission? <sighs> Divi- division. And when I mean division, I mean... You have to want to solve the problem. When I say you, I mean our leaders in this country mm-hmm. on, on every stage, on every level. They have to want to solve the problem. And when I, what do I mean? In order to solve the problem, we have to work together. I remember my mother, my mother, so my mother obviously was a freedom fighter when she was a college student. Um, and I remember after George Floyd was murdered, looking at the protest on TV and I called my mother up and I said, I was I was distraught. I was emotional. I was like, Mom, like, you see this? She was like, yes, baby girl, I'm watching it. And I said, doesn't this make you mad? Like, you did this 60 years ago. And here we are again where I, I have to now do the same thing that you did. And my mother said, baby girl, are you looking at the television? Are you watching what I watch? I was like, yes, ma'am. And she said, I'm watching. She said, right now I'm watching a little white boy. A little white girl, I see an Asian boy, I see a black girl, a black boy, all marching, talking about Black Lives Matter. She, I said, and I said, okay. And she's like, I would have never dreamed of seeing that when I was younger. She said, this is a dream. She said, because people finally get it. We cannot do this without each other. And that's what I mean to answer your question. That's why we can't solve these problems because we don't understand that we're not getting this done. We ain't getting this done. I'm using ain't on purpose. We ain't doing nothing to solve the problems in this country unless we realize that we got to do this together. Yeah. I can't I cannot do this without my white brothers and sisters. I can't. I'm not solving racism without them. You know, so I I, I feel like once once I got over the fact that hey when I go in rural West Virginia, which I have, I know that some of the initial encounters I have won't be as pleasant. I know that for a multitude of reasons. But once I get past the fact that at the core of all those folks, a lot of them are growing up the same way I did, and they just need somebody to believe in them and invest in them and continue to invest in them and believe in them and find hope in them, that we'll get to a place of understanding, then that helps me see through the surface level hate and division and reach a level of empathy and hope. And I, and I know what hope does. Hope transforms people. So I push through the hate to get to the hope. And we need more folks who can do that. Uh, you made me cry again. <laughs> um, and I agree. You know, uh, I'm fearful. Yeah. For our country now. Um, and not fearful in the, you know, we're not going to make it. Yeah. But fearful in the, why has so much anger entered into our, our, our politics, our discussions? Like, we cannot have civilized discussions anymore. Yeah. It's, if, 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 I, if I were a Republican and you were a Democrat, or if you were a Republican and yeah. I was a Democrat, and us being on screen together... You know, somebody would try to cancel both of us. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we because we can't have honest discussions about what we're actually trying mm-hmm. to accomplish. You know, the the loudest, angriest, most divisive voices are driving our politics, and as a result, they're driving our policy. Mm-hmm. And 
my candidacy specifically is is geared towards addressing that. Like I will work with anyone to solve mm-hmm. problems. Like I am a solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, we as mm-hmm. military yeah, leaders right. yeah. are solution we are. focused leaders. Yeah. We I don't care how we accomplish the yeah. mission. Mm-hmm. Give me a mission. Mm-hmm. I will find a solution. And if it works, we will replicate the solution. Right. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Yeah. But we can't even agree that there's a problem. <laughs> right. I, I think that's what that's probably the beauty of what the military taught us, right? It was first identify the problem, right? Literally identify the problem, develop courses of action, try out the courses of action, see which one works. And then replicate that and, and do that over and over and over and over again. But when you sat at the table, everyone was in, gre- in agreement that there is something to solve, that right. there is a problem. There is a problem. So you're not coming to the table unless you're trying to be a part of that solution. Right. Of course, and then we would have whole teams, red teams, right, that would try and poke holes in what we were doing. But even those folks were trying to poke holes such that you could come up with a plan that worked. So everybody's mentality was always, we are going to solve this problem so that we can accomplish this mission. And to your point, you're right. Like, I think that that's, you know, something that mindset has probably contributed, you know, to your success over your lifetime, you know, that military mindset. And I also think that that mindset is what we need across public service, those various lanes I talked about, but just in society in general. Like we, I think, like there is just a distinct lack of ideas. Yeah, right. people lack vision. There, right. the, and the, those people who have vision are attacked for sure. having vision. Sure, you know, and I mean there there are clear examples in mm-hmm. in our in our government right now. We don't need to, right again talk about <laughs> them, but people who both have and people who both uh, lack vision. Yeah, um, we need more people who have vision. You know, because if we can. If we can identify the problems and identify potential solutions and then try potential solutions, uh, we can at least begin to address problems. It's yeah. um, it's a crazy chicken and the egg world yeah. that that are, uh, and it's, it's what's even crazier about it is that I'm like that I'm willfully trying to put myself into this, <laughs> into this position well, to be attacked. Well, that's who we're built to be, though. It, think, I, think about the institution that we come from. Yeah. Think about who we represent. We weren't built to sit on the sidelines no. and watch problems happen or watch people suffer or, you know, watch uh, peace elude us. Well, we, were, we were literally built, created, molded, and, and taught and developed to be the folks who came up with the vision, who came up with strategy, who led teams of folks who are devoted towards finding solutions. I am not, I have a, I have mentees and they'll, you could call up 10 of my mentees and they'll tell you right now, if you're bringing a problem to me or anybody who's ever worked for me, I have a three, three to one rule for every one problem you bring to me. You better bring up three potential solutions. I don't care if they are ridiculous, <laughs> right? If they involve like a T-Rex, uh, spaceship. you know, yeah, spaceship and uh, a power saw. I don't care. Like, <laughs> but it, but at least I know you began thinking about solutions when you brought that problem to me. And somewhere in the middle of one of those three, there's a good idea. And so, yeah, I, I, so I agree with you, brother. It's the lack of vision. The lack of creativity, but actually, actually, it's a lack of focus on solutions. Yeah. Anybody can complain about a thing. Right. Well, I will say this. Um, I ran for Congress the first time here mm-hmm. in Oregon in 2012, and I did it uh, because I saw the anger. You know, this is this is the the end of Obama's first term. Like, people were angry. I don't know why they were angry, but they were angry, and nobody could agree on anything. And, and that anger hasn't diminished. It is has only been amplified. It's been amplified by our media. It's been amplified by po- po- politicians using uh, divisive issues to deliberately divide people so that they can generate the fundraising waves that they need to maintain their grip on power. And I, in 2012, I was like, no, this isn't okay. Like, 
uh, something has to change. Mm -hmm. And I lost that first election in 2012. But what I did do was I did identify that this was a viable path to service for me. Like, you know, public service as an elected official is a viable path to service. Um, and, you know, everyone's like, hey, you have great ideas, you know, mm -hmm. what you should do, run for school board. Uh, and then, you know, run for state senate, and mm -hmm. then you run for, you know, then you run for Congress, right? And I'm like, no, because the system is the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's not a reflection of any re uh, respective parties' for sure. positions. Yeah. It's, it's literally the system. Uh, you, you raise funds to win office. You know, through the course of raising funds, you develop loyalties. Uh, and you lose sight of who you're actually serving. Uh, so in 2012, uh, I made the decision that I was going to... I made a, a few realizations, actually. One, that it was apparent that Oregon in the 2020 census was going to get a sixth congressional seat. Uh, that was very apparent, you know, based upon the population growth of Oregon here. Um, the second was that I needed money to win, and there's, a, there's only two ways to get money. You either come up with it yourself, Mm -hmm. or you start asking for money. Mm -hmm. um, and asking for money was never really an option for me. I, I do not ever want to be in the position where I'm like, hey, I need money to win this seat. You know, and they're like, yeah, here's money. Um, you know, I'd like your phone number and your email, and you know, we'll talk after you're in a position to actually help me. Um, that I didn't want to be in that position. Mm -hmm. So 2012, I came up with a plan. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, I'm going to run for this open seat in 2022, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to win it. And to do that, I needed money. And I decided, okay, I'm going to make the money to do it myself. My opponent in 2012 raised something like $2.5 million. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, I mean, she didn't even have to spend it all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, if I come up with $2 million by the time the 2022 election uh, comes around, I'm going to run for this seat. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put myself in the position to win this seat and represent the people of Oregon without the tethers of, of political loyalties, without the, without the glad handing and the back slapping and the mm -hmm. favor swapping. Um, so I have, over the past 10 years, been grinding. Mm. Uh, and I have created... <laughs> the wealth necessary to, to run the campaign to win the seat that I set my sights on 10 years ago. Uh, and it's, it sounds almost absurd to say to someone who isn't us, right? Like, mm -hmm. because people, who has a 10 year plan that they can execute on? <laughs> like, and, and, it, and to be, to be honest, there was a tremendous amount of luck because mm -hmm. At any point during those 10 years, like I could have been here without without the money that I planned on but, having. But you know what, Cody, I think what's so powerful about what you're saying is your 10-year plan at the end of it, there was something you felt was worth it, you know? So anybody could make a 10-year plan to do a thing. But I think if, if at the end of your 10-year plan, the goal is to elevate or more align yourself with the level of service or impact you want to make on this country, it just speaks to literally your beginnings, right, in service and how at every level when you could have chosen a whole nother type of life, you're just like, wait a minute, there's this part of me that's rooted in service to this country. So whether I amass wealth or not, at the end of the day, my goal is how can I make my community better? How can I make the people around me better? And I think that that's... How can I continue to serve? That's, to me, that's so dope. Like, like seriously, because I feel like it's people like us, and when I say that, I mean folks who come from humble beginnings who understand what it's like to, I'm going to keep saying to get it out the mud. I love it. You know, when you grind, when you like re really have to like make your life, you have to build the life that you want. But if at some point you go, you know what? I still feel like, and my favorite quote is from Muhammad Ali, where he says, um, service to others is the rent you pay for room here on earth. So Muhammad Ali, right? The, arguably one of the greatest boxing champions in the world. He, that man could have did whatever he wanted to do you know, after he became world champion, but he still felt an obligation 
to serve those around him. In his case, it was a black community. I think it's really dope that as successful successful as you are, you're still like, oh, there's still that like heartstring, right? That's pulling at you. I gotta serve. Well no, it, it didn't it didn't pull at me, Mary. Yeah. It dragged me. Oh come on. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um yeah, it's you know, I'm excited yeah. for where I am right now. Yeah. And I and I look forward to being where I intend to be a year from today. Absolutely. Um and I look forward to meeting with you in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Got to meet me for a community service event. Yes, Mary, for sure. I, I will certainly be there. Yeah. Um, but I want to thank you for taking the time out of your immensely busy schedule to, yeah. to come here, yeah. to sit with me. To, I mean, I don't want to thank you for making me cry, but you... <laughs> <laughs> you... Uh, Mary, you're you're a special friend, and you always Thank will you. be. And uh, I appreciate you and everything that you do for everyone that you do it for. Um, and there is, there are a few people in this world that I respect more than you. Oh, thank you, Cody. Actually, I can't think of anyone. <laughs> uh, but you know, I have to qualify. I don't want you getting yeah. too big ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, brother. Best best of luck. Thanks. Best wishes to you and all your endeavors. Just continue to serve this country the best way you can, man. I, that's that's my only intention. Absolutely. Ever and always. Absolutely. <laughs> my brother. <laughs>